What we have continued to see throughout the years is that increase in youth-to-youth sexual activity. Welcome, y'all, to Season 2, Episode 6 of Staffing Safety Society. I'm Kevin Trapani. And I'm Paige Bagwell. Paige, I'm really eager for our conversation today. As I, don't, I should stop saying that because I'm always eager for these conversations. We but do say it every week. I do. And we love these people. We are just blessed to have awesome guests. It has been our privilege and honor over 26 years or so to collect and track incidents of sexual abuse at youth-serving organizations. And it's odd to call that a privilege and an honor, but it's just a really powerful set of responsibilities. In all those years of doing that, there are a couple things that we've seen stand out really in recent years. The first is that while we are disabused everybody the notion that the sexual abuser is a guy in a raincoat that we don't know, right? there's been a significant increase of incidents of peer-to-peer abuse where a child is touching another child inappropriately. Second thing is society is just increasingly intolerant of any of this kind of stuff. Right. And that may be with the Larry Nasser moment. Society has just finally said this happens and we're going to punish it when it happens. Expectations have changed. Yeah, you bet. Our guest today just knows this stuff cold. She's a wonderful friend and incredible servant to kids in this country. Um, How about you introduce her and get us launched in this conversation, Paige? I would be happy to. We are excited to have Britt Darwin Looney with us today. And Britt, you said it right, Kevin. She has been a longtime friend of Redwoods. Currently, she serves as the Vice President of Child Protection and Organizational Risk at YMCA of the USA, which is our most recent kind of relationship with her. She's trained thousands of direct care workers, supervisors, administrators, leaders across the country around prevention. She's worked with administrators and executive directors at large-scale youth development organizations across the United States. She's implemented policies. She's done it all when it comes to this topic. Spent 13 years at Presidium, which is another partner of ours, which then brought her to YUSA to really make a big difference. So welcome, Britt. Thank you so much for having me, Paige and Kevin. So let's start kind of simple, Britt. Like, how do you define sexual abuse? It's kind of actually a complicated question. When I got started in this work, people really shied away from saying sexual abuse. It's become increasingly more important to call it what it is. We focused a lot on the prevention of sexual abuse perpetrated from an adult to a youth. I started doing Presidium trainings. We spent a lot of time talking about patterns of grooming, looking at how offenders gain access, privacy, and control to kids. We would also discuss opportunistic offenders, those who don't necessarily engage in what we typically thought as grooming behavior or those that didn't have that primary sexual attraction to children, but were finding themselves in situations where they had increased access to kids and boundaries got blurry and then it resulted in abuse. So it's important to increase our knowledge around how that can happen in a youth serving organization. What we have continued to see throughout the years is that increase in youth to youth sexual activity. I'm pretty specific to call it youth to youth sexual activity and not youth to youth sexual abuse because the dynamics are different. To say a child perpetrator, we don't know that around problematic sexual behaviors in youth. So really focusing in on the zero tolerance for the behavior itself. Right. 
and not categorizing a young child as an offender. We have to look at the dynamics of adult to youth, youth to youth, even in how we can protect ourselves from false allegations of abuse. What you're saying is it's changed over time. This is what abuse and sexual activity that is inappropriate looks like today. And Britt, I really appreciate your language around youth to youth sexual activity. I think it's really important to create a different context within which to view the child kind of on either side of that event so as not to make judgments. When we think about a 10-year-old and an 8-year-old or an 8-year-old and a 6-year-old, talk about how you draw the line kind of between sexual curiosity and sexual abuse in that broad category of sexual activity. There are definitions that we can look to to determine what is categorized as inappropriate sexual activity between youth. But the reality is in our youth-serving organizations, many of our staff aren't trained and don't have the knowledge to determine what is appropriate versus inappropriate. Right. I'm speaking from an attorney's perspective. I am not a therapist. A therapist would be one who's better able to make that determination. From an organizational standpoint, we really cannot tolerate sexual activity between youth participants in our programs. I think our first instinct is to say, oh, this is normal sexual curiosity. Or for our young staff to be really confused when kids act out sexually. If they are in the care of the organization, it is the organization's responsibility to be supervising. And that's really how parents look to that. Society looks at it in terms of who had the responsibility in that circumstance. If it were to occur due to some sort of lapse of supervision, how we respond is extremely important um, from the organization's perspective. So Britt, it sounds like you're not alone in your recording studio there. I'm not, Kevin. My dogs have decided to be part of our conversation today. That's awesome. There you go. This is a really nuanced conversation. But from a programmatic standard standpoint, there's a really bright line. Yeah, definitely correct. What is curiosity and the beauty? Like all those, like it can get blurry, but there is this bright line. What is your advice around what should be reported? Right. In an institutional setting. Yep. Different states have different guidelines around reporting. I always recommend err on the side of reporting. As a youth serving organization, we don't have all of the facts about a family and a family situation. By reporting to the appropriate authorities, we may be adding a piece to a puzzle that they're already looking into. The other thing I'll say with that, I've heard of many youth serving organizations who will report to whoever their reporting agency is for that organization. Sometimes they will say, this is a youth to youth situation. We're not going to do anything. Just because that outside entity isn't going to take a formalized report, that doesn't mean that they shouldn't respond internally. What can we learn about that child's behavior or what have we learned about that child's behavior because they engaged in this activity? And then that's a point to make an evaluation on how do we properly supervise this child going forward? So that's a little beyond what we would typically think of and categorize as reporting. I've consulted with many organizations where there's a child who's engaged in problematic sexual behavior. It wasn't documented. It wasn't reported to the parents. The child wasn't placed on a behavior plan. And then that behavior continued and escalated. And when the organization needed to make a determination on that child's care, no one had been kept in the loop. I'm so glad you called that out. 
report. Err on the side of caution. Don't kind of hold that in and try to figure that out for yourself. Like use the professionals that are in your state and in your area to help you with that. They don't respond. It doesn't get you off the hook. Anything that you do, don't forget that external and internal communication piece. Where we see organizations, I would say getting in trouble around incidents of abuse is when they try to hide what's happened. They don't do the formal external reporting and they try to do some sort of internal investigation before making that report. There is no harm in, in reporting. Get the information out there. If that organization decides not to take the report, there are other people you can call also to help you walk through that process, whether it's your insurance partner, whether it's Presidium, they have a helpline that's available Mm -hmm. that can help an organization think through the steps that need to be taken. Yeah. The harm is not in being transparent. The harm is in not being transparent. It's exactly the opposite of what people's instinct. When we're fixated on what to report and what not to report, that's compliance mentality. What you're suggesting is whether the agency takes it or not, the fact is we're in the youth development business. And if we're in the youth development business, we want to use that information in full transparency with both sets of parents that are involved with a wide range of staff and stakeholders to help that child. So I think that's a really beautiful way of thinking about it. Also, the age of consent varies by state. Sure. Good point. I've heard of situations and seen situations in my years um, in this work where an organization decided not to report based on the letter of the law in age of consent. You just mentioned something really important in terms of we are youth serving organizations. And anytime that there is victimization of a youth, that should be reported externally to the authorities to do the investigation. Regardless of the letter of the law. We get so caught up, and I'm a lawyer, so I can say it. We get so caught up in what exactly does the statute say? Do we really fall within what's written in this law? And, And really, we need to think bigger in terms of who we're serving and what it means to report and protect those protect those kids. Paige, we've known Britt a long time. I think it's fair for us to say she's a recovering lawyer. Do you think that's okay? <laughs> Probably so. I'm not giving legal advice. I do put that disclaimer No, that's out. right. That's right. <laughs> There'll be a disclaimer in the show notes. What, what types of incidents are being reported? Presidium did an analysis of their helpline data, and they mo- removed the external incidents, interfamilial abuse. They removed that and looked at just the internal reports. And what they found was that between 2013 and 2022, 51% of the calls that they received were related to incidents of youth-to-youth sexual activity. 44% was adult-to-youth and 5% adult to adult. And that's common to what I'm hearing from my colleagues. I mean, we've been seeing that and hearing that from across um, all types of movements. We've talked a lot about the observations, but let's move a little bit towards those prevention methods. How can these youth organizations create safe spaces, safe places for kids? This is my favorite thing to talk about, Paige. We have to have policies. We have to have training. We have to have mechanisms for responding All of those are extremely important. If I had to pick one, it would be supervision. In all high-risk activities, we've always encouraged is for organizations to identify their high-risk activities and then create specific plans for monitoring and supervising those activities. Our high-risk locations are locker rooms and bathrooms. 
We could talk about all the iterations of supervisions for bathrooms that we've all gone through. The buddy system where we were sending two, and then it was the responsible buddy system where we were sending three. Now there needs to be a staff person that's standing in the door who can see the feet and can hear the conversation. That is the way to prevent youth to use sexual activity in locker rooms. And Britt, you made the comment about how do we allocate our resources to the highest risk stuff. And so we've got child supervisory staff that's disproportionately female, yet we know that there are boys in the locker room or bathroom changing room. And so we may have precious few resources there, but how would you advise us to manage that? Sometimes we have to get creative with that. Even that staff person who's standing in the door, they don't have to be in the bathroom, making sure that kids know that there is a presence, Hmm. that someone could come in at any time. And that seems kind of weird. Like you're like in a bathroom, I need privacy. Yes. And you need to know that someone could come in at any time. That is the thing that youth seek to engage in sexual activity is the privacy that they think that they can gain explaining to kids what the bathroom procedures are. Bring them into the loop of, hey, when we go to the bathroom, here's what we're going to do. Those kids will tell you if things change and they know it's supposed to be one way. They're like, hey, wait a minute. Isn't this supposed to happen? Educating the kids is important. So they know what the rules are, what the procedures are. They like those guardrails. I know when the camp director would greet us when our kids arrived, he would say to us all the time, I'm happy to have my little auditors here. (laughs) Well, Kevin, I was actually about to share a story about my daughter when she was around four and she was going to a, a day camp for the first time. And I'm thinking to myself, knowing what I know, what is the highest risk for something to happen to her at camp? And I knew it would be peer to peer. I said, when you go to the restroom, no one should go into your stall with you. You should be in there by yourself. If someone says that they need to come in your stall or they're not going to be your friend, they're not telling you the truth. So then the next day I said, okay, let's go over what we talked about before. And she goes, I know, I know. They don't really want to be my friend. (laughs) It really is the beauty and curse of being the children of people like this. I know that folks have been enriched by hearing from you, you know, millions of listeners. What are you smiling about? (laughs) Who care deeply about this topic? What what would you like to say to them? Um, I think one thing we haven't addressed is how technology and electronic communication is now playing a role. There hasn't been a whole lot of external research done on the topic. Although Dr. Finkelhor has recently released a study, they found that sexual abuse that occurs after electronic communication typically is perpetrated by someone that that child already knows. Mm -hmm. For incidents of adult to youth, Sexual abuse and boundary violations, the second highest risk category, is involving electronic communication. Take that a little bit further, because in many of our organizations, we hire young staff who may be minors, thinking through our policies around how adult staff communicate with minor staff. Right. Wow. A couple of really good points. Britt, thank you for today. Paige, what are your thoughts as we as we close up this great conversation? There was so much that she said. This is something that is preventable. And I love that you brought up supervision. Like if you had to choose one, supervision is it. And that's not just equal to supervision of a camp counselor, supervision of a coach. I want to call out that this is supervision that parents can do, like to your point around electronics and using social media and other platforms. Every adult should be part of the supervision 
answer. It's a lot to take in as a parent. It's a lot to take in as somebody that just loves organizations, but it's also a really nice reminder that we all have a job to do. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll just remind everybody the name of this podcast is Staffing Safety Society. And the point of talking about staffing in conjunction with safety is we recognize that when staffing is inadequate, and that includes when we have not enough people or not enough well-trained people or not enough of the right kind of people, all of those things lead to compromising safety, which is the environment within which kids get hurt. And this is all happening at a time when society will not tolerate us making these kinds of mistakes. If there's a silver bullet, there's not, right? But if there was a silver bullet, it's going to start with supervision all day, every day. I'm just reminded, quite frankly, Britt, how grateful I am for you. You know, for a lot of years of having hard conversations, not always the most popular person in the room. You always are with me, but, you know, the two of us kind of have to find each other at a lot of events. But, uh, but you've, you've had hard truths to share with people for years. And your integrity has carried your message. And so I'm grateful for you, not just for today, but for a a career that saved the souls of an awful lot of kids. Well, thanks, Kevin and Paige, for having me. And I just to echo what you said, it takes all of us to create a culture of safety. Well, let me read this out. Staffing Safety Society is created by the Redwoods Group. It's produced by Stephen Doshert, Melanie Young, Paige Bagwell, Piper Kessler, and me. If you like the show, tell a friend or leave us a review. It means a lot to us. If you have a topic suggestion or any kind of feedback, we'd love to hear it. Click on the link in the show notes uh, where hopefully we'll find some resources as well that Britt is going to share with us. Or send an email if you'd like to community at redwoodsgroup.com. Community at redwoodsgroup.com. And we'll get back to you. Staffing Safety Societies recorded weekly in North Carolina. I'm Kevin Trapani. And I'm Paige Bagwell. Thanks, y'all, for listening. Thanks, everybody.